We're celebrating the holidays that center around the Christmas season. And as we, as, as I think Margiva was talking about, about the nativity scene, that we take Christ as a symbol for each of us. Each of us is the incarnation of Christ. Or a Buddha, if you prefer. Or of Krishna. Take your pick, it doesn't matter. But we'll use Christ tonight. You're all of them. But do you realize it? Is that real for you, or is that just an intellectual idea? The process of transformation is taking this from an idea into a realization. And that's when life starts to become interesting. So let's take the image of the cross. Because when Christ is born, he already knows he's headed for the cross. That's the destiny. But what does that mean? It's all of our destiny. What does crucifixion mean? We're all crucified, right? Is there anybody here who's not crucified? But what does it really mean? Let's take the image of the cross as it is generally understood in esoteric traditions. The cross is that which arises in time. And the cross beam, the horizontal beam upon which Christ's arms are nailed, is the flow of time in which we have to live our lives as perishable creatures in a relentless march of time, time that never stops. Time that never gives us a moment to relax. Even if we're on vacation, time is moving. And we always know, i got to get back to work next week or whatever. And, and we never really take that moment to truly find the essence of our being. As long as we are in time, we are in movement, in flux, we experience impermanence, and we experience suffering. Because whatever we're attached to in time, we know we're going to lose. And, and life in time is one loss after another, isn't it? And even though, yes, we gain something, but most people are looking backward at what they've lost. Or even if they're looking forward to what they might gain, they're still not living in the present, are they? And so there's always anxiety because there's no stability in time and there's no certainty there's no guarantee and so here we are as Jagdish said shipwrecked but even more we're in the current being carried down the, the river of time without any way to control its passage that's the horizontal but then go a little bit below the horizontal <laughs> And you'll find the unconscious mind is not in a moving time. That's where the conscious mind is located. But we have an unconscious mind. And in the unconscious mind, there is also time, but it is frozen time. And there are ice cubes, frozen time cubes, let's call them, from our childhood and from moments that were pleasant or moments that were traumatic that tend to want to repeat themselves. And even if they're traumatic, 
we somehow are driven to relive them over and over again. How many people do you know who've had a, ma- a bad marriage and then they marry somebody exactly like that for the second time and go through the same process? And maybe the same person, yes. <laughs> the same patterns over and over again. We fall in the same hole over and over again. And that's because these unconscious fragments know nothing else but these little scenarios that on their own need to recur. Freud was very amazed at this, and he changed his whole theory after World War I. He got a slew of patients who had what they called then shell shock. Now it would be post-traumatic stress disorder, right? But they were you know, hit by a bomb or... or People died close to them, the, the blood, the gore of it, the, the explosive sound created nightmares. And Freud wondered, why would we have an organism that would recreate these horrible scenes over and over again and wake a person up in a cold sweat with nightmares? Why wouldn't the mind forget all of that and give us soothing images? <coughs> And the conclusion that he finally came to was that th- these were parts of consciousness that were literally ripped off from the fabric of our whole consciousness and that needed to be sutured back into the wholeness. And so it had to come up again so that we could put it into a larger narrative that could heal the traumas and could put into a new context to the experiences. And sometimes it wasn't traumatic so much uh, as a nostalgia for the loss of something that was really wonderful and the trauma is based on the fact that we've lost it. You know, and the first uh, major loss that Freud again encountered was that of the, the mother. The breastfeeding, the moment uh, at, at the breast when the food came, you didn't have to be an eater, it was automatic. You were one with the one you were eating. And it was an act of love that was being given and you felt the heartbeat and the warmth. And and that kind of an intimate union of love is never found again. And so the, the loss of that creates further suffering. And in the unconscious mind, we have these frozen time fragments that unless we dissolve them, They contaminate the flow of time. They come in and they interrupt what would be a rational way of living with very irrational desires, including what uh, Freud and later Lacan had to, uh, to categorize as a death drive. There was literally a drive to die to get away from all of this suffering and from the unbearable pain of the losses and the traumas that could not be made whole again. And so people would live to excess in order to cover over uh, those losses and to try to bring to life that which within them was actually dead. But then the problem is that, that psychoanalysis has discovered in the modern period this unconscious level of the ego. But... In our modern age, we have sacrificed knowing what is the source of time itself and what is the upper, the upper pole of the cross that we don't have in the modern world. In the modern world, we gave that up 
we, we considered that all oh, those were just religious ideas. There's nothing beyond the ego. There's nothing behind or beyond this world of time and space. And you might as well live to get as many toys as you can because there's nothing else. And, and that's when a capitalist society was created and the ego was unleashed in the world. And there was no higher reason to live or to find any truth beyond the ego. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said that um, history could be divided into three phases. In the ancient world, people sacrificed what was really valuable to them, like their best cows, you know, and, uh, and, and they gave their, uh, their wheat and their other, uh, their other uh, uh, produce, sometimes their virgin daughters. So they gave what was most valuable to them and sacrificed it to God until uh, finally, you know, Christ said, God doesn't want that, actually. What God wants is you to sacrifice your lower nature, sacrifice your suffering, sacrifice your ego itself to God. But the problem is that didn't quite happen. And in Christianity, there's an oscillation between a third chakra God, as we would call it, and the fourth chakra God that Christ was trying to present. A third chakra, Old Testament God, is that of power, dominance. And that was the God that the ego chose, even though it nominally chose the God of love and uh, turning the other cheek and loving thy neighbor as thyself and all of that. But the forms of Christianity that eventually developed were more about killing for Christ than dying on the cross for higher love. And the same happened in Islam where jihad, which was originally a term for the spiritual war against the ego on behalf of Allah and the conversion of oneself. Islam itself means submission to God and becoming a servant of God. But that too, gradually as the ego distorted things, we've ended up in the world that we have in which no one really understands their own religion, but they want to conquer everybody else and convert them to it. Just don't make them live it in the true sense. And so we have a world of hypocrisy and cynicism in which religion itself has delegitimized uh, its own truth. But that doesn't change the fact that this cross of time and of mind, of consciousness, arises out of the timeless. In, in the medieval period, the cross was called Holy Rood. It was the same cross as the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And the Buddhists would say that Buddha is actually meditating at the foot of the cross. And Krishna is dancing around it. It's the same symbolic image for all the religions. But time comes out of timelessness, comes out of absolute nothingness. Everything that appears in this world as a something is really the manifestation of absolute nothing. And for that reason, if we are aware of that absolute nothingness, then we are not stuck in the flow of time because every moment of time actually doesn't come from the previous moment, it comes from the timeless. And they knew that in the ancient world and that's why they, they talked about two different kinds of time. Chronos time, chronological, and kairos time. 
the time that emerges from the depths of the nothingness and touches the absolute, the pleroma, the top of the cross, which is the Godhead. And so, in order to escape from this hell realm that we have turned time into, and our lives into, the rat race that we've all been caught in, as John just said so eloquently, we must rise to the higher level of the cross, where the fullness of God can be re-experienced, re-grasped as our own nature. In Kundalini Yoga, they talk about this in a more nuanced way of the different higher chakras, starting with chakra four, that of God's love, and then chakra five, God's wisdom, and then chakra six, the actual light and power of God, and then chakra seven, the emptiness that contains it all. And it's that emptiness at the top and the nothingness at the bottom that collapse into a single unity. And it's at that point, in the absolute present, in every moment of the present, where we are both nothing and all, and in which we have absolute freedom, in this present moment that is actually eternity and not time, to change, in an absolute sense, the direction of our lives. We are not trapped by our conditionings. We are not forced to continue the nightmares of the past or the sorrows that we have suffered that we still hold on to in the unconscious. And we are constantly receiving the wisdom of God if we will only open ourselves to receive it, the inspirations that can help us make accurate decisions in life. And to be in the flow of time no longer as an obstacle to God, as an avidya, the ignorance of God, but as the manifestation of God. And then the world comes from a place of karma, a hell realm, into the place of the lila, the joy, the spontaneous play that God is. And life becomes infinitely, exquisitely beautiful. And when we're in that state, we'll know it, because we'll be in amazement all the time and in complete unconditional acceptance of everything that occurs to us, and we'll recognize the beauty and the blessing in every moment. To do that, though, we have to recognize that the scientific worldview that we inherited since Newton, that claims that the world is mechanistic, and that life ultimately is on a basis of inanimate matter, that can be understood and controlled technologically, etc., and the genes can be manipulated and all of that. This pseudo-mastery and hubris, the arrogance of human ego consciousness, has to be overcome. And we have to recognize that the entire universe is alive. And that not only does it respond to our consciousness, but it will counteract our intentions when we are not living in a state of gratitude. And in the ancient world, they were aware that we are dealing not only with other human beings in our world. Human beings may be the main actors, but there's another category that uh, there's a modern philosopher in France named Bruno Latour. He's used the word actant. There are actants as well as actors. 
And these actants may not be conscious in the same way. You may not be able to talk to them, but they have a huge effect on the world. And this has always been recognized. There, there's a great uh, poem from probably the Middle Ages that starts out, For want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For once of a horseshoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost. And for want of the war, the kingdom was lost. And all for want of a nail. And many kingdoms have been lost because somebody didn't put the horseshoe in correctly, the nail into the horseshoe before the battle. Because they weren't in a state of mindfulness. They weren't in a state of sacred gratitude for reality in which they paid infinite attention to every detail of life. And that's what meditation is about. To become absolutely aware of all of the actants in our life and to treat them as the recipients of the radiance of God's love. Carl Jung was, a, was very much aware of these actants. He used to go to his own little retreat house that he built on the, on the banks of Lake Geneva. And when in, he often wasn't able to leave Zurich for months to go there. And so when he'd go back, he found that uh, he'd enter the kitchen and the, the pots and pans would fall and sometimes the, the forks and the spoons would hide themselves from him and things would break. And he realized, oh my God, they're angry at me. You know, I left them for too long. They're kitchen utensils, but they have a consciousness. They're alive. And he would do a meditation in the kitchen and ask for forgiveness and recognize that he owed them more love and attention. And voila, suddenly he found what had been lost and everything came together harmoniously. And he realized that, you know, he wasn't psychotic. This was actually happening. And his, uh, his clients also reported similar events. That all the actants in the world, in your life, will change the way they treat you when you treat them with love and respect and honor. And that goes for all the beings in our cosmos. And in the, again, the ancient world that we think of as superstitious, they were aware that there were actins also that are non-physical. Nature sprites and little gremlins and uh, uh, beings, elementals, beings that live in nature and that could determine whether our flowers would bloom or not. If you had a green thumb, it's because you were paying attention to all of these elemental beings in your garden or in the fields and honoring them with a, a proper meditation. And those who take picture the, pictures these days discover that there are orbs that show up on their camera, spheres that are non-physical, but that actually have an energy field. And there are more of them when you're in more of a state of gratitude and joy than when you're in a negative state. And there are all kinds of entities, terrestrial and extraterrestrial, that actually share this cosmos with us. And some from other dimensions who visit that we don't tend to see. And angels who come that if you are attuned properly, you'll be aware of. But the modern scientific mind has poo-pooed all of that and has caused us to live in a very barren, desolate kind of world. And, but the world is alive with infinite richness and beauty and power and wisdom if we will be willing to tune into it. But it requires a kind of humility. 
and an openness, a boundless openness to possibilities that our rational minds cannot conceive of. And when we do open ourselves to that, we find that the God that is missing and absent in this world, that, by the way, was Nietzsche's third phase. First you sacrifice your, your, uh, your cows and your daughters, then you sacrifice uh, your lower jouissance, your lower chakra pleasures, which didn't finally work. <clears throat> but then finally Nietzsche said we decided to sacrifice God altogether. And God is dead was the, uh, the movement of the, the 20th century and we were led into this atheistic world. Well, now we must kill off and sacrifice our cynicism. And we must sacrifice the ego as a whole to recover our God consciousness. And when we do that, we will discover that the God that was absent and missing and uh, eclipsed, as Martin Buber said, or in exile, <coughs> is right here. God is not absent at all. It's your ego that has simply veiled the presence of the supreme reality from your consciousness. But you don't have to work at it at all. All you have to do is open your mind in a meditative state in silence, because your own ego mind fills your consciousness with your own thoughts and you can't receive God's thoughts. So you have to create a space of emptiness in which God can fill with that infinite presence of love and light, that space of your mind that was designed to be filled with God's presence, not with ego, not with the mind's own desires. And when we do that, then we will find we lead an inspired life and a life that is a blessing for everyone in it. And we go from being the consumer, the eater, to being the eaten. But it is a glory to be eaten. It is a glory to offer oneself to the world. That's what is discovered by people who live lives of service that that giving is the most fulfilling thing one can do in one's life. The more that you offer, the more you receive. The more that you allow yourself to be eaten because you are giving all of your being to the manifestation of God on this plane means that that divine power then comes through you to support you and that you become that very holy communion itself which is eternal and which is the whole reason for our existence. That eternal flame that cannot be eaten because it can never go out. And, and that's why the flame is the inherent symbol of all the religions, not only the Hanukkah tradition that, that we're celebrating also in this season with the Jews, but you will find that in the Hindu tradition, the festival of lights is also present. Each of us has a flame within us, but are we keeping it lit or do we let it go out? That's the question that we have to ask. And of course it never really goes out, but we cover it so we don't see it. Because we're afraid that someone else will blow it out or someone else won't appreciate its beauty and its luminescence and will be hurt. And so the fragility of the ego causes it to hide. Fear of judgment, fear of rejection, fear of attack, 
fear of abandonment, all of those fears and anxieties have caused us to put out our own flame. Now is the time to light the light again. To let the fearful ego die and the joyful self arise. And doing this is not only an act that we do for our own benefit, it's an act that is the greatest salvational act we can do for a world that is suffering in darkness. If we can bring our light into the world, we become a lighthouse in a world that is filled with darkness. The lighthouse, the pharos, that was the meaning of the word pharaoh, you know, in ancient Egypt. The pharaoh, the king, was the one who was supposed to have the brightest light. And the gods and the goddesses of ancient Greece were lights. One of the great lights was Nike, so the pharaoh Nike, the, the light of the goddess of victory, became the name Veronica, Veronike. But we've lost the ultimate meaning of these names. People carry names that have ultimate significance, but most of us aren't even aware of them any longer. We've lost the richness that our human heritage has given us. And we have to bring it back and take it seriously. It's not just, oh, that's funny, that's nice, I have that name. But no, the name is to truly signify the truth of your being. Take your own lives that seriously. And that comically, that joyously, that happily, and recognize that it is all a blessing. And don't trade in your freedom for money or for some perishable, temporary pleasure. You'll, you'll regret it if you do. If you live for any other value than the highest, you will realize that you shortchanged yourself in the end. If you live your life out of fear and thinking you have to conform because you won't be able to pay your bills otherwise or your spouse will leave you or whatever, you, you, you betray yourself and break your spirit and then no matter how much money you make or whatever else you accomplish, there's a, a sense of, of loss and devastation that comes with it. And so get thee the kingdom of heaven first and all will be added unto you. This is great wisdom that, that Christ taught. Start there. Start within. Start by recognizing the light and the love in your own heart and let it blossom. Be a gift to the world. Let your heart sing. Some of you may sing as beautifully as Alba. Let's all sing in our own way in the world, whether we sing through our preparation of food or our creation of an ashram or our uh, teaching a class or our writing a poem or dancing or whatever ways, whatever talents we have been given. Let it be. Let our lives be the expression of this ultimate, exquisite glory of God that comes through humility. It comes through the egolessness of living without trying to impress people, but giving away that beauty, that creativity as a gift to the world, then we will be enriched thousandfold. And we need to create communities today that are based on love, not on profit, 
not on how much will I earn as a result of that. We need to create communities that are founded on the, the principle of love and sharing and communion, or they won't last. And they won't be able to manage when the adverse times that are approaching, the apocalyptic times, that is real, that it's not a joke. The time, time of tribulation that we are passing through can only be safely negotiated if we are in a state of love and supported by a community in which love and discipline, the law, the higher law, is followed, in which we submit as good uh, Islamics to the law of God, the mitzvot of the Jewish tradition, the commandments to live in ways that provide justice and mercy and sharing of all the, the fruits of the earth with all of our fellows, but also as avatars, as manifestations of divine love. And we cannot ignore either side of those commands. We are a creature in this world, and yet this world is within us, and we are the absolute. And we must live from both dimensions simultaneously. If we live only from one and not the other, then we'll either be too arrogant or we will be too frightened to live powerfully and accurately in a world in which we must face many difficulties in which only the virtue and the strength of God, that almighty power that is real and that is with us, can manifest to support us through the losses, the difficulties, the opposition, the negativity that this world is now throwing at us to test the truth, the integrity, the authenticity of our being. And through this time of trial, the human species will be transformed. It's a blessing. And the new age can only be brought to life when we have gone through the fire of dissolving the ego and living in the radiance of the real self. And so I hope all of you are willing to go through that fire courageously and truthfully purifying the unconscious of all of its fantasies and all of its fears that are based on an incorrect understanding of reality and that is in alignment with the divine power that wants to flow through you. And our community here is entirely dedicated to supporting you in that inner transformation and realization of your true nature. So I hope that your heart will open and whatever is your destiny, whatever path you live, whether you are in Costa Rica and you want to be part of this community or other communities that are doing the same thing that will network together or you're going to other parts of the world, be true to your divine nature and you will be guided. <coughs> but have the courage to follow the guidance and the inspiration that you receive and life will go well.